Welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Palm Beach Conference. Our speaker in this podcast is Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Square and the Tower, Networks, Hierarchies, and the Struggle for Global Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. It was recorded on February 7th, 2018. Well, good afternoon. By this stage in any conference, your neural network will be very close to shutting down. And so my challenge uh, is to keep the synapses firing by talking to you about a different kind of, of network, namely the social network. My new book is about social networks in history. And, and part of the point of this book is to, is to tell Silicon Valley, you did not invent social networks. They did exist before you came along. In fact, we're living proof of that because the Hoover Institution, now very nearly a century old, depends on a network of supporters that is not virtual, but is real. We could graph the network in this room right now. Each one of you is a node in that network. You probably never thought of yourself as a node before. A, I know it's not a particularly flattering word. Each of you has multiple edges. You are connected to one another. And we could graph the network if we just knew a little bit about uh, your relations. In fact, Colin knows all about your relations as our director of development. He probably has the graph on his laptop right now. What's amazing about social networks like these, which are uh, the kind of thing that date back to the earliest history of our species, is that they have a very fascinating and complex structure. If we graph that network, you would not all be equally connected. Some of you would have a great many edges, a great many relationships. And some of you, relatively few. The significance of that strange feature of human social networks, that they are not lattice-like. In a lattice, every node has the same number of edges. It's uniform. Social networks aren't. And I'm going to talk about the significance of that strange feature of our behavior as a networked species. First, a word about my title. Put your hand up if you have been to Siena, a sophisticated and well-traveled group, my kind of people. So I don't need to explain too much about this picture to you, because this is one of the most striking juxtapositions in all the world of a square and a tower. It's a beautiful, extraordinary square, the Piazza del Campo. But on most sunny days, for a part of the day, it is overshadowed by the Torre del Mangia. The idea is that most of human history is a contest between towers of power, like that one, the shadow of which you see, hierarchical structures of authority, and squares where the social networking goes on where people meet informally, sell things to one another, hold markets, or, in this case, occasionally run 
horse races. Thankfully, that's not a common feature of town squares around the world. If it were, they'd be much more dangerous. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I a tower person or a square person? Am I basically somebody in an org chart, usually near the top of the org chart, with people reporting to me and issuing orders down the chain of command? If that's the way you think about yourself, you're an organization man, probably man, and you're a tower person. But if you define yourself more by the informal network of family and friends who are significant to you, not to mention those acquaintances that you remember when you meet them, then you're like me. You're a networks person. You're happiest in the town square. This is an organizing framework for life as well as for history. The truth is that each of us is a bit of both. It's pretty hard to avoid being somewhere in the command structure of somebody's tower. Even as an ordinary citizen of the United States, you are part of that strange hierarchical structure called the federal government, whose fiscal pathologies have cropped up in previous presentations. So we can't opt out of the tower. Whether we like it or not, we're in some tower or other. And nor can we be entirely cut off from our fellow human beings. Even the most misanthropic person, and I used to be quite a misanthropic young Scotsman, has a few friends and, of course, a family. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because the world has never been so networked. It's true. Never in all of history have we been so connected as a species. One in three of all human beings is on an online social network platform. More than two billion human beings are regular Facebook users today. And the proportions of people online rise with the level of economic development, as you might expect. This is an amazing and extraordinary phenomenon that does owe something a great deal to the innovative capacities of Silicon Valley. They didn't invent social networks, but they made them bigger and faster than anything we've ever seen before. This map here gives you a sense of the Facebook network, of which I'd imagine the majority of you are members. Actually, let's just check. Who here is on Facebook? Put your hand up if you used to be, but you recently deleted your account. <laughs> there you go. I'll come, back to why, I'll come back to why you did that later on. This was all supposed to be awesome. We were all going to be connected, and everything would be marvelous. All people want to connect. This is Mark Zuckerberg speaking I think at the Harvard commencement last year, the great arc of human history bends towards people coming together in ever greater numbers from tribes to cities to nations to achieve things we couldn't on our own. Silicon Valley has been saying stuff like this since the 1990s. We can only connect the world. Everything is going to be so awesome. 
And it turns out that that is not quite how it worked out. This is a nice quotation. It was my favorite from last year from one of the founders of Twitter, F. Williams. I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. I was wrong about that. To which the only possible response is, well, duh. <laughs> Why did we ever think it would be awesome if the entire planet was connected? How did we fall for this particular brand of Silicon Valley uh, Kool-Aid, and, and why? Why did it not quite work out as planned? Why are storm clouds gathering so fast over Silicon Valley that there will be flash floods reported this afternoon? You can't pick up a newspaper today without seeing a negative story about one of the network platform companies. Wall Street Journal ran as we were deliberating today, a new story about how it is that YouTube directs its viewers, its users, to extreme and unreliable content. That's what the algorithm does. But why? Why has this storm broken? A year and a half ago, when I followed Tom Gilligan's advice and example and moved to live uh, in Stanford, and work full-time at Hoover, a decision I have not regretted for one nanosecond, I was astonished by the hubris, by the arrogance I encountered amongst the big tech companies' senior executives. They thought history began with the Google IPO. <laughs> and all the stuff I knew was like so completely uninteresting. The Stone Age, what can you possibly teach us, Neil? Well, I said, I don't know, it just strikes me that maybe you guys have a problem coming. Why? What happened? Why in particular did the year 2016, not just the election in the United States, it also played a part in, in Brexit in my country of birth, what, why was it that network platforms went from heroes to villains, and why in particular are Facebook and Twitter rapidly becoming the least popular technology companies, losing users as we speak? Well, I want to argue, and this is the key theme of the book, that it was predictable, both on the basis of network science and history, that if you created giant online social networks, it would not be awesome at all. And let me try and explain why. Jordan Peterson has written a best-selling book called 12 Rules. Some of you will probably have bought it by now. I approve of him. I approve of anybody who causes mainstream liberals to freak out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not gonna give you 12. I'm gonna give you six. I can never remember 12. I need six. That's the maximum number of rules I can remember at any given time. So I'm going to tell you the, the six things I learned about networks as I wrote this book. Now, the first is a fairly obvious one. No man is an island, as the English poet John Donne wrote. Network analysis begins with the fact that we are connected, even 
the misanthropes. But not only that, birds of a feather do flock together. There's a phenomenon called homophily, which sounds as if it may be a crime in some southern states. <laughs> homophily just means birds of a feather flock together. We are attracted to people like ourselves, whether it's ideological or cultural. If you create a network, even one as small as the network in this room, over time, and quite quickly, clusters will form of like-minded or otherwise similar groups. On a vast scale, platforms like Twitter and Facebook have allowed that to happen online. And my favorite example of how this works is this. Now, this is one of many rather bewildering network diagrams or graphs uh, that I use to illustrate my argument. What does this show us? Well, this is a graph of retweeting. It is a graph of tweets on political subjects, gun control, gay marriage, climate change, and others. And what it shows you is two things. One, on Twitter, liberals retweet liberals, and conservatives retweet conservatives. Two barely connected clusters exist on Twitter. There's some retweeting. See those lines that connect the red cluster with the blue? Some retweeting goes on, but it's a tiny proportion of all the retweeting. This is the, uh, the filter bubble echo chamber effect that you've heard about illustrated graphically. But better still, what this particular paper shows is that you are 20% more likely to have your tweet retweeted for every moral or emotive word that you add. Now, moral or emotive, I think, is a euphemism for pretty much any strong language. Post a factual tweet. Don't be disappointed if it doesn't get retweeted. Use the F word, accuse somebody of being a war criminal, a tyrant, child molester, you name it. The retweet probability rises 20% for every moral or emotive word you use. Now, what this illustrates is that the network platforms of today are engines to worsen our polarization. And we were already quite divided. Not without precedent in American history, I think. We've had our divisions over the centuries. But the social network platforms are making it worse. And they're making it worse because they are programmed to do so. The algorithms on Facebook and on Twitter and on YouTube are designed not just to send you stuff like you already liked, but to send you stuff that is more like the stuff that you already liked. It's not just fake news that goes viral. It's extreme views. And I think the extreme views may prove to be more toxic than the fake news. Now, let me try a historical analogy on you. This is where I try to give Silicon Valley a history lesson. We've run an experiment like this before. We created a new technology, the printing press, 
in the 15th century, which by the early 16th century was very widely established all over Europe. And we decided to run the experiment of having an idea go viral in this new and altered public sphere. What these charts show you is that there is a close similarity between the effect of the printing press in the 16th and 17th centuries and the effect of the personal computer and the internet since the 1970s. Essentially, you dramatically reduce the cost per unit and exponentially increase the volume of content. The only real difference between these charts is the x-axis. We've done it all an order of magnitude faster. What took a century in those days, we do in 10 years in our time. Martin Luther was the first individual to harness the potential of the printing press. With his message that the Roman Catholic Church was fatally corrupt and required radical reform, we had the first example of an idea going viral through the printing press. If there had been no printing press, we'd never have heard of him. He'd probably have been burnt at the stake and done. That was the fate of heretics before the printing press. But this heretic went viral. And his message was a radical one. Once everybody could read the Bible in their own language, they would have a direct relationship to God and everything would be awesome. The priesthood of all believers, that was the phrase that the Bible gave Luther and Luther thought this was the way to achieve it. Oops. What actually happened was that about half of Europeans agreed with Luther. You know what, you're right, but you don't go far enough. And the people who went really far ended up here. And the other half said, dude, you are a heretic. We are gonna burn you at the stake and your followers. For 130 years, Europe was torn apart by religious conflict. Religious conflict so extraordinary that some people, the radical proponents of Reformation, ended up leaving Europe altogether and founding their own colonies, far as possible from Rome. That's how wrong Luther was. And that's how wrong we were to think that if we connected everybody in Mark Zuckerberg's global community, everything would be awesome. We are in the early stages of reenacting a version of Europe's war of religion only it's a political, cultural conflict. And if my analogy is right, it's going to get worse. And it's going to get more bitter. Okay, I promised you five more laws of network science. The second one is it's a small world. Well, you know that. All the time you bump into people, it seems quite random. There you are at some strange airport and somebody you were at high school with shows up. We've known now since the 1960s why this is. The notion of six degrees of separation uh, is one that you'll all have heard and probably made jokes about. Remember six degrees of Monica Lewinsky? Six degrees of separation turned out to be about correct. When the sociologist Stanley Milgram ran an experiment to see if he could get a letter from a random Midwestern community to a particular Boston stockbroker that nobody in the Midwest knew, each time it took between six or seven steps 
for the chain letter to find the guy, the target in Boston. Now, why is this? It's because we don't inhabit clusters of intimate friends and family. We also have acquaintances. These are the weak ties that bind us together into larger clusters. It's the people you know slightly who really connect you to the much larger world, a world you wouldn't be connected to if you only hung out with your closest buddies and intimate family members. But this small world just got smaller. How many degrees of separation are there between any two randomly selected Facebook users? We know the precise answer, 3.87, and falling. We've gone from six degrees of separation to less than four. This is an extraordinary experiment in shrinking the world. Most people think that when stuff goes viral online, it's because it's cool. Cat video A was just cooler than cat video B, and that's why it went viral, and the other one didn't. But that's not right. Things go viral partly because of their inherent content and partly because of the network structure they attack. This is an example of a very hierarchical network. I don't want you to get the idea it's a false, that it's a dichotomy, networks, hierarchies. In fact, there's a continuum. A hierarchy is just a special kind of network in which the edges favor one controlling node, the node at the top of the tree in this case. In a hierarchical network, there's not much horizontal communication. The nodes further down have to go through that central node to communicate with their peers. Network structure matters because it determines the speed at which things go viral. This is true of epidemic diseases. Any doctors in the house? If you're a medical scientist, you know that what causes an epidemic is not just the virus, it's the network it attacks. How connected that first victim is to the rest of the village or the city determines how rapidly the virus can spread. Fourth lesson I learned, networks never sleep. This is a network diagram of the world economy. It's a rather cool thing uh, by my friend Ricardo Hausmann at Harvard, and it just structures uh, the world according to products and, and export markets. Don't get the idea that this is a static thing. It's just a snapshot of a network or complex system that is always changing. Because networks are complex systems, they have emergent properties. And we don't quite know what they'll do next. They're unpredictable that way. So the next thing to understand about a networked world is that it's dynamic, and it will do stuff, change structurally, in ways that are profoundly surprising. Fifth and penultimate law of networks. Networks network. And it takes a network to defeat a network. 
In the book, I tell the story of an early Russian hack of a Western network, a less well-known case than the one that attracts so much attention in Washington these days, but a good illustration of the point that you can do hacking of networks without the internet too. The Russians hit on a brilliant idea in the 1930s. They decided to hack the network at the heart of Cambridge University, the most exclusive intellectual network in the history of the English-speaking peoples, the apostles, an elite intellectual society to which only men could be elected. It was the ultimate aspiration of bright young Cambridge students in the 1920s to be elected to the apostles. John Maynard Keynes was a member. Lytton Strachey was a member. It was the capstone of the English establishment. The Russians saw the potential and they hacked it. Three out of the five famous Cambridge spies, including Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt, as well as a man named Michael Strait, were apostles who became Soviet agents in the course of the 1930s and betrayed their country and the United States, leaking vast quantities of highly classified documents to the Soviet Union during and after World War II. They gave themselves away on numerous occasions, but because of their connectedness to the English elite, Blunt would ultimately end up being the keeper of the Queen's art collection, it never crossed anybody's mind until the evidence was absolutely glaring and presented by the United States that these men were Soviet agents and traitors. Last point. Networks are profoundly inegalitarian. Rather ironically, it was George Soros who pointed this out at Davos just a couple of weeks ago. I guess it takes one to know one. We were promised a horizontal, flat world. We were all going to be netizens, remember? All connected equally, all speaking truth to power. But in truth, the network's in inegalitarian in two respects. One. Network structure's not flat. When people join a new network, they don't want to be connected to me. They want to follow somebody who is already well-connected. They want to follow Donald Trump, in the case of Twitter, or for that matter, Facebook. It's called preferential attachment. When you join a network, you want to connect to the already well-connected. And this means that the structure of giant social networks is profoundly unequal. A few nodes have an insane number of edges of followers, and most have hardly any. The second respect in which networks are inegalitarian is that the founder is the owner of a substantial stake in a winner-takes-all business. Network economics is monopoly economics. Google has a monopoly in search. Amazon has a monopoly in online retail. Facebook has a monopoly in social networks. 
This is an extraordinary phenomenon of our time. It's called Zipf's law, to be absolutely precise. In a networked economy, in a sector that lends itself to network economics, the winner takes 90%, the runner-up 9%, and everybody else 0.9%. That explains why five of the eight richest men in the world are beneficiaries of the network revolution. We got a warning of what a networked world would be like in 2008. Because the financial world got networked before everybody else. The financial world was highly networked by the mid-2000s. But what nobody at the Fed or the Treasury really understood was just how networked it was and how vulnerable the network had become. The removal of just one node, Lehman Brothers, from the network of international finance called the network to, caused the network essentially to collapse. The decision makers who let Lehman fail didn't understand the economics of networks. They underestimated, to be technical, the very high betweenness centrality of that investment bank in the global credit system. Now we're all in a network like the international financial system thanks to the advent of social networks. But we're not all netizens. This is the way it was supposed to work. We were all going to be voting all the time in online polls. What is the most awesome thing in the world? Who is the greatest netizen? This was a 2013 poll. Actually, this is what we got. We got a networked world in which a relatively small number of firms, you can call them the FANG companies if you like, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Probably you should add Apple in, so it's FANG. These companies became dominant in particular sectors of the economy, and of course, a new hierarchy was born. The hierarchy of Silicon Valley, of Chairman Zuck and his peers. Now, I've just got time to tell you about what happened on the other side of the Great Firewall of China. Because while we ran our own experiments in network economics, and the rest of the world essentially submitted, name one big European tech company. Nope, Snap is not European. The only one that you could... SAP. SAP, okay. Spotify is slightly bigger as a network platform. I thought you said Snap. But in truth, the Europeans did not compete. The Chinese, without really quite planning it, and I've asked about this in Beijing, kept the American companies at bay and allowed their own companies to flourish. And now, the only rivals to Fang in the world, to Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, are BAT. Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And their challenge to US technology companies is as big, if not bigger, than the geopolitical and naval challenge that you heard about in our first session 
this morning. Because these are the only companies in the world capable of competing with the Silicon Valley giants in the global marketplace. But there's a difference. In China, the square and the tower work together. This is a picture of China's most flamboyant and brilliant businessman, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba. Amazing story. It's a kid who learned English by offering free guided tours to tourists in Hangzhou where he grew up. And from nothing has built one of the biggest businesses in the world. But who's he talking to? Who's got his back to the camera? Xi Jinping. The two most powerful men in China. But there's no question who's the most powerful. And it's not Jack Ma. At a com conference organized by the Chinese part Communist Party last year, Jack Ma said something remarkable. The political and legal system of the future is inseparable from big data. Bad guys won't even be able to walk into the square. Think about that. The arrangement is this. Any data on Chinese citizens, or indeed any users of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, that Xi Jinping wants, Xi Jinping can have. The most extraordinary system of social control is being built in China today using big data and the network platforms, beyond the wildest dreams of George Orwell, Aldous Huxley, and for that matter, Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. We're taking a different approach. In the United States, there has been more or less open warfare between President Trump and Silicon Valley. Certainly since Charlottesville, arguably it really began with the executive order on immigration from Muslim countries. It got so bad that at one point last year, Trump was tweeting against Zuckerberg and Zuckerberg was Facebook posting against Trump. Watch this space. Because at some point, something has to change in the United States. In my view, it is an unsustainable state of affairs that a small number of companies know more about citizens of the United States than the citizens themselves, to say nothing of the federal government, that those companies occupy monopolistic positions in the different sectors that they dominate, and most crucially, with 45% of Americans getting their news from Facebook, those companies have a vast power over our public sphere and our politics. And as I was saying only this morning on Fox and Friends, for those of you who were up bright and early, Republicans have to wake up soon to the fact that Facebook will never be the friend to them that it was in 2016, when the Trump campaign made brilliant use of Facebook advertising and the Hillary Clinton campaign was left high and dry. They could tweak the algorithm at Facebook so that Sean Hannity disappears from your newsfeed. They have that power, I know, because they told me. The power of Facebook, of Mark Zuckerberg and his company, is greater over our public life 
than the power of William Randolph Hearst, the most powerful newspaper baron in American history, at the very height of his power. Something's got to change, and I predict a showdown. Perhaps it will wait until after the midterm elections. Perhaps it will come sooner if Republicans wake up between Washington and Silicon Valley. It's that old story that I began with, the story of the square and the tower. And if you visit Facebook headquarters, you'll be struck by how like a square it is. And if you visit President Trump's former residence in New York City, you'll notice it is a tower. Thank you very much indeed. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.